everyone, it's Danny Chambers here, and this is the Veterinary Voices podcast. And I'm on with Sophie White, who is a clinical animal behaviorist and a vet. And today we're talking about dog human aggression, like dog attacks on humans and adversive training techniques. Hi, Sophie. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me and uh, on my favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, so this is actually a really interesting subject. It's quite topical in the news at the moment. It, it dog attacks, really, that have made the news. It tends to go in phases, doesn't it, where it, the news is sort of covered with it occasionally, um, especially at the moment of XL bullies being very high up in the news. But I guess just to take a, a quick overview of this, we should remember as vets, our priority is to safeguard public health, even over animal welfare, isn't it? And this is very much a public health issue. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, public health is very, very important. And as you say, I think, you know, we have a real responsibility to make sure that we take action when, you know, we see dogs which we think are threatening public safety. It's really, really important we address that. And that can start with really small things. You know, if your client mentions their dog has bitten somebody, you know, we should be addressing that and doing something about it. I also think, you know, just from a reassuring the public point of view, those of you with section one banned breeds, say like the XL bully types, like pit bulls, et cetera, it is specifically written in DEFRA guidelines that it is not a vet's job to enforce the legislation. So, you know, you should feel comfortable that you are still very welcome to take your dogs into practice. You know, you should still be accessing vet care because, you know, health and pain and things are really important when we look at aggression and risk. But it is that balance, you know, I think ultimately, in my opinion, I don't feel any uh, requirement to try and place or enforce breed specific legislation because I don't feel it bears any relevance to public safety. And I don't feel I'm failing to meet any of my responsibilities for public safety by being very inactive in terms of any sort of enforcement. So though there's a lot of talk about breed specific legislation, XL bullies, pit bulls, and sort of these horrific random dog attacks that you sort of see on the news, often through a mobile phone or CCTV footage of often a bystander sort of being bitten. It's probably worth pointing out that the majority of dog bites sort of happen in the home, within the family or a visitor or a neighbor, or that that is the predominant thing that we, we, we're concerned about sort of in this podcast, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. As you say, you know, the media, well, we know that media are not always completely accurate. And there certainly is a trend to focus on certain patterns and certain, you know, things. And as you say, very much on trend at the moment is dogs and dog bites. And as you say, you know, there have been some really tragic cases, you know, there have been fatalities, there have been some really worrying attacks that are not typical, you know, that are very, very unusual and really shocking. But when we look at the stats, fatalities are a tiny proportion. And actually, we're not even sure statistically whether they're increasing yet. But what we do know is that dog bites generally definitely are going up. And as you say, the vast, vast majority of those happen in the home and with dogs that, you know, dogs and, and people that know each other. So just to give us an idea, a, a typical situation, is this maybe a dog snapping at a toddler who's just been invading its personal space for too long? Or is it, you know, neighbours coming around that the dog doesn't know as well? What, what's the typical th thing you see as a behaviourist? So what I see, I can definitely answer. If we look at statistically, we don't know because our data collection is so poor. 
Just because people don't report it, I guess. Or... Yeah, but also how it's collected. So when really the only reason anyone ever knows is if you go for medical care. Mm. Children are overrepresented because obviously we, we worry about them. If you're a healthy adult that gets bitten, you often don't go for medical care. You just deal with it yourself. And then when it's recorded in a medical setting, it just goes down as bites and strikes. So lots of injuries actually aren't aggressive. You know, that might be kids, as you say, you know, toddlers getting knocked over when the dog comes running up from behind and just bumps into them. You know, that might be a granny that's tripped over the dog when it was on the floor. That would still go in the same group. Oh, I see. So it's not necessarily the dog aggressively attacking someone. No, no it's bites and strikes. So any injury basically associated with a dog will go down in that data. So and it's really, really hard. Our data collection in the UK is really, really poor. In my opinion, in terms of what I tend to see, the guests to the home are a big issue. And actually, I think for me, I see more issues with guests that aren't well known to the dog. The other maybe sort of groups we see, you should say, are children. Um, children can be quite annoying if you're a dog and we I think often expect a bit much of our dogs you know we expect our dogs never to lose patience with the kids just like kids sort of you know like because they love the dog kids love dogs yeah they? wanting to hug them all the time yeah, pulling their ears but you know poking wanting them in the to face. share their toys and stuff when actually the dog's kind of saying I'm not really into this again from research what we do know is that actually you know it's not, well, A, obviously it's not the child's responsibility because they're a child, but also they're not able to read dog body language effectively. So that's key. What we've just touched on there, I think that's probably the next point of this, is that a lot of dog bites, especially ones that occur in the home, are normally preventable simply because people didn't pick up on the signs that the dog is getting yes. stressed and unhappy and about to lash out. Is that right? Yeah. And as you say, you know, young children, children under about six or seven are not able, you know, research just they even if you teach them, they, they can't really relate it to real life. They don't have that emotional intelligence and sort of um, cognitive ability yet. And unfortunately, lots of our adult population simply aren't educated enough in in dog body language. So they don't recognise the kids annoying the dog? Yeah, I think they don't really understand either the, what the dog's showing is suggesting that they are very unhappy or that they normalise it. And they don't understand that at some point that dog's going to bite. I think that's spot on because we often see sort of viral clips on YouTube and social media of maybe it seems very cute, like some toddler riding a dog or hugging a dog. And the dog, to me, as a vet, looks really unhappy. Yeah. It's even showing its teeth. And yet the parents are filming it because they yeah. see it as a very cute and positive interaction rather than the dog that's really feeling sort of molested and upset. I think, you know, and ultimately, so that behaviour is never acceptable. You know, essentially, your dog is not a toy for your child. But as you say, even worse, as I say, is when actually you're supposedly supervising, you're right there and you're watching it, but you still aren't actually interpreting what's going on or acknowledging the risk that that poses. And I think the vast majority of canine behaviourists would agree that it's extremely unusual for a dog to bite someone causing an injury and that be the first thing someone could ever have noticed. They've often been showing signs that they're not happy. Yeah, it's like when people say, you know, oh, they were a lovely dog and then they suddenly bit somebody. That's very unlikely. It's much more likely that we have missed things and then the dog has reached the point of biting somebody and then that's what we've noticed. So talk us through what behaviours and signs you see if you observing a dog that is feeling stressed and giving you warnings that it's it's going to bite if you don't stop annoying it. So 
So we have sort of a, a really, really lovely kind of infographic that's very widely used called The Ladder of Aggression by Kendall Shepard. And that's a really nice example. Essentially, we've got this, you know, this, this ladder going up the rungs and we've got some green kind of signs at the bottom. Now, those essentially do not mean your dog is going to bite or they are being actively aggressive, but they suggest the dog's not that comfortable. And we need to be aware and notice and just think about the scenario and just be aware that something might be brewing. That might be things like licking their lips, looking away, turning their head, lifting up a foot. Essentially, they're trying very passive strategies of like retreating a bit, disengaging, not really wanting to look. Because dogs are very social creatures, isn't it? I mean, they communicate with each other and humans through body language. Exactly. And they actually want to avoid conflict. Yes, you know, 100%. And I think, you know, as you say, they are really good and they have a lot of what we call like ritualized behavior. So essentially they do lots like us waving. You know, when you wave someone to say hello, that's just a ritualized greeting. Like the actual waving doesn't really mean anything. And lots of our dogs, they do these kind of little behaviors like yawning, licking their lips, looking away, um, say like lifting up a front paw. So for example, just to put that in context, we keep going back to kids, but I guess we started with that. We'll keep on it. Um, so you've got a toddler who is uh, stroking a dog quite roughly you know, on his body, really loving the dog. But the dog sort of suddenly turning its head away from the toddler. It's yawning and it's licking its lips. That's a sign that it's like, actually, I didn't mind this earlier, but now I yeah. just want to be left alone. Exactly. That's not to say that dog is going to bite, but that is that dog essentially starting to communicate that. I'm not into this. Like, mm. uh, this is this is not great for me. Essentially, what it would like you to do, and if you were a dog with good social skills, what you would do is notice that and stop what you're doing. Move away. Essentially, it's asking you to stop doing what you're doing. Just get out of my personal space. Yeah, this isn't I'm not I'm not really liking this. I mean, it's a bit like if you were talking to somebody, you can sort of notice when they're trying to get away from you. <laughs> you know, you start to see that body language that, you know, maybe they're checking their watch and they're sort of like shuffling towards the door. Oh, goodness. Is that a sign people don't want to talk to me? Oh. <laughs> That's when they're trying to get away from you. I thought everyone was just <laughs> obsessed with the time. But, yeah, <laughs> but you say those sort of, you know, those sort of signs are essentially those little sort of ritualized behaviors that essentially say, I'm trying to get away from you, please. And if we ignore those what is quite likely to happen and, and you know, the behavior continues we'll start to kind of go into that orange zone which again is essentially we need to be careful <laughs> you know we've gone from asking for a bit of space to essentially starting to warn that mm. i really don't like this and i guess just before we go up the ladder further is um you know the most obvious one sometimes a dog just walks off like goes out into the yeah. kitchen you know or goes back to its bed when it was enjoying playing so it's had enough and understandably kids in particular follow them into the kitchen, follow them onto their bed and keep poking and prodding them. And, and, and even though the dog has physically removed itself. Yes. And I think, you know, what is very sort of ironic is and really important to, you know, to appreciate is that as a human society, we don't have a very good tolerance for aggression. Aggression is normal, um, you know, to some degree. It's a normal part of behavioural repertoire for all species. We don't like aggression and we would really like if our dogs used very minimal aggression. However, we ignore them when they do use very low level behaviours. You know, so those green behaviours, they're kind of the ones we would like because we don't like the orange and the red ones. But when they show those behaviours, as you say, like yawning, walking away, we don't tend to actually appreciate what they're trying to say and listen to them. Mm. If every time they yawned and walked off, we didn't follow them, 
they wouldn't need to then growl or snap at us because they'd have already managed to successfully diffuse the situation. And I guess as well, it's just recognising that dogs, you know, when they're teaching their puppies behavioural skills, you know, a mother might snap at a puppy that's getting very annoying because it hasn't learnt to pick up on you know, body language and it won't do the puppy any harm. Whereas the same snap at a toddler could be very dangerous or um, very painful, couldn't it? And the dog's actually performing the same action that it would do for its own puppy with absolutely no malice, just sort of training the puppy. It does the same to a toddler and suddenly that's a dog bite in the face, which is very serious. Yeah, as you say, you know, we've got big issues there. They say dog dog communication works really well generally because they understand each other. <laughs> mm. You know, when we've got a, a dog and a human, it's much harder to communicate. And often we don't understand what they're saying. And you say also and you've got those practical factors that, you know, children are high risk for a number of reasons one of which being they tend to lead with their face so you say young children do tend to put their face into everything and they're at the right height so you know facial bites and things are really common in our children and obviously that's really serious you know from the emotional impact you know and developing fears managing the dog and the child in the home you know scarring you know there's lots and lots of really serious consequences for the um child but also say for that dog if the dog starts to become concerned that that child is a threat to them that relationship is quite likely to start breaking down and get worse because the dog's mm. not feeling safe around the child. The child essentially isn't listening to their body language. Okay, so if we go back to the um, the, the first signs you said, like yawning, licking, turning head away, walking away, if that gets ignored, what's the next stage on the ladder? So then we start to see, you know, slightly more kind of progressive, a bit more active signs. So we might see things like getting a bit stiff, standing up and looking quite kind of erect, we might see facial tension. So we might start to see some, you know, sort of wrinkling across the, the, the forehead and changes in ear position. We might start to see some intense staring. And for me, and I think a lot of people who work with dogs would say the things that start to make them realise they need to get out of the way are freezing and staring. Freezing and staring. But they're very, you know, they're very easy to miss because the dog's not actually doing anything. But you see, it's staring, staring at what? The staring at the thing staring that's annoying them? Staring at the threat, yeah. So from what they perceive to be a threat. So as you say, you know, if, you know, the kid's playing around the dog and suddenly the dog is really staring at the child, that's not a good sign. <laughs> or as you say, you know, if the dog was sniffing around or maybe, you know, wandering around and suddenly they've stopped and gone very still, that's, that's you know, that's not a good sign. Essentially, mm. what you tend to see is an increase in tension. They get very stiff. And everything looks very intense. And what about the ear position? You said that changes. What, what, what's it depends on the scenario a little bit, but generally what we'll tend to see is either ears going back and sort of tight or potentially coming forwards. If they're coming forwards, you definitely need to get out of the way. But really what we're thinking about is how relaxed they are. So hopefully you know what your dog's normal ear position is. And if they look unusual, you know, if they are very forward or very back, that's when we start to worry. And that's often where we look at like the facial tension. You're basically how wrinkly are they? Have they started to get all wrinkles between their ears, which is odd. You know, they've pulled their ears up really tight. So it's often, you know, when we think about us being stressed, you know, you get you get very tense. Sort of the same thing we often look for in, in the dogs. If they look very tight and, you know, up tense, that's that's not a good sign. OK. And what's the next level then? So we then essentially get to our, our physical threats or action. So, you know, they've said, I don't really like this. And then they sort of warned you and said, no, look, come on, <laughs> I really don't like this. 
And then we essentially move to that threat phase. And that will be things like growling, snarling, so actually exposing the teeth, air snapping. So most, not every dog goes through every step, but quite a lot of the time people will say, oh, a dog, it tried to bite me and I got out of the way. Unless you have the reactions of like a Formula One driver, that's very unlikely. <laughs> Your dog can bite you very quickly. They are probably using a, a very clear threat behavior of I could bite you. <laughs> so they're just snapping the air to let you know that if you keep going, coming closer, if you don't stop, they will do it properly. But that's a very conscious effort to say, I'm warning you, but I'm not biting you at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And we might even see dogs, as you say, who sort of make contact with us, but they don't like they don't leave any marks or anything. They're literally just sort of hitting us with their teeth. And I think what sometimes we don't give dogs credit for is, say, is that that's an intentional choice. <laughs> they are, you know, they're trying to not bite us, but they are also trying to make very, very clear that you need to not be doing what you're doing now. I mm. really don't like it. And obviously, you know, if we ignore those warning signs, kind of the last option for our dog is to use physical biting. And the kind of problem with that is that biting is very effective <laughs> at making people go away. And once your dog, you know, learns that actually biting someone usually solves this problem, you know, they leave when I bite them, it encourages them maybe to use those behaviours more because they asked nicely. You know, they they gave you a bit of a stare and they tried to walk away and that didn't work. But biting you did work or, you know, growling and snapping at you mm. did work. So we sort of inadvertently encourage those higher level behaviours. That's the only way of effectively communicating with us that they want space and they're not happy with the situation. Exactly. You know, it is just communication. And you know, if we think about ourselves, you know, there's only so many times you can ask someone nicely. If it's something that you really need and they're not responding, you are going to try more um, assertive methods because you need to achieve that thing. And that's how our dogs you know, often are feeling at that time. So that's very helpful. And that's about, you know, so in the family home, being aware of your dog's behavior and warning signs and making sure that they have their sort of boundaries respected so they can feel comfortable and happy. Um, I guess there's other types of aggression out there where you say um, you're out on a dog walk and um, you're on a lead and you know the dog feels threatened. And some, some dogs can be a bit aggressive on the lead, can't they? I mean, we're specifically talking about dog-human aggression here. I know it's more common to you know, be aggression of other dogs, but um, th th that's a slightly different situation, isn't it? Yeah, and I think often that's kind of because they can't express that full range. You know, a lot you know, they can't walk away because they're on a lead. And that frustration sort of at not being able to express a full behavioural repertoire can mean that some of them go up that ladder quicker. So the dog doesn't like strangers. It doesn't like people it doesn't know. And it knows because it's on a lead, it won't be able to do the walking away behaviour. And so it sort of goes immediately to a, maybe a warning snap. Yeah, and also I think there's learning experience. Unfortunately, we are not very good at respecting, say, some dogs' preferences. Some dogs don't like strangers. Some dogs don't mind them, but they don't want to be touched by someone they don't know. And we tend to want to interact with dogs. And some of them just don't want to interact with us. And I think you know, if you have been repeatedly exposed to a person who's basically ignored your wishes and keeps touching you, the next time someone comes along and sort of maybe, you know, says, oh, aren't you cute and looks at you, that dog may well go, right, well, I know what's going to happen. Someone I don't know is going to touch Someone me. Someone I know is going to touch me. I don't like it. In the past, I've asked them not to do it. You know, I've looked away and I've, you know, tried to duck out of the way and they've touched me anyway. So now I'll snap at them because that's probably going to make them go away more effectively. And I guess the um, an example for us as vets is um, dogs coming into the veterinary surgery. I mean, they're, they're scared, aren't they? They've got a 
previous experience there. They're in an unfamiliar situation. Uh, there's other stress dogs there as well. They know what's going to happen might involve an injection or something painful. They might even be feeling ill. That, that's a different type of uh, sort of a dog-human aggression, isn't it? Yeah, and when we think about different types, I think ultimately aggression is just about creating space. It's about repelling and creating more space for yourself. But there certainly are different motivators. There might be different reasons that you want more space. And I think, particularly in the vet setting, fear and you know not feeling well is a is is obviously a huge issue and again you know if you don't feel well or if you're in pain and someone touches you it is very reasonable to react aggressively <laughs> that is mm. just a natural response you know we can't blame dogs for being aggressive if we're poking something that's very painful that's a very basic um you know reaction but what's also really important and i think often is overlooked in the veterinary setting and also in grooming is a frustration around lack of control the fact that we just do stuff to our dogs and lots of them don't like that they don't want to have stuff just done to them without being asked or particularly say if they predict that oh someone's going to do something horrible someone's going to stick a thermometer up my bum they don't want to be held on to because they want to get free so that someone can't do that to them that's often why we see dogs you know who really don't like restraint and even if you're not doing anything you know you just want to hold them steady to look at something they're already getting quite aggressive and quite mm. um, desperate to get away because they don't like, you know, us basically kind of forcing things on them. They want to have more choice and control. I guess grooming is a good example, isn't it? I mean, often they're put in some kind of harness with someone they don't really know. And then that person's poking and prodding them all over with some noisy equipment. That's a really strange situation if you don't understand the meaning of it or why it's happening or what the point of it is, isn't it? Yeah. And that's and it's often a really long process as well. <laughs> like, you know, some of these dogs, you know, depending on your breed and what kind of hairdo they're having, they can be there for hours. And mm. that is a huge amount to expect. Because they don't know or care what the hairstyle is or why no. it's happening. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> say, like a... Our focus, I think, for grooming really should be on um, like practical, not necessarily, you know, like breed standard. Because as you say, mm. your dog doesn't care what its hair's like. As long as it's comfy, it doesn't care. But like you said, you know, use of restraints takes away choice and control. And mm. that is a very good way to increase aggression because they can't walk off. They can't give you those subtle signs. And so I guess um, we've talked about dog behavior and how, it, uh, you know, living of the family out and walks. But the other side of, of, of just simply recognizing your dog's behavior and warning signs and, you know, giving space when it needs it is, is also training, isn't it? And we know that there's a lot of good, well-trained dogs and owners who understand training and get help are going to have a lot fewer problems with this. I mean, partly because they probably understand body language better yeah. when it doesn't do a proper dog training program. But the the training actually benefits the dog as well, doesn't it? For a whole variety of reasons, for desensitization and you know, positive interactions. Do you want to just touch on the importance of training? And then we'll talk about different sort of training philosophies. Yeah, and I think, like you said, you know, a really important part of particularly when we talk about puppy training is owner training. <laughs> you know, yes. that should be, <laughs> you know, when you're doing puppy training, a big part of that should be owner training, too, because you play a massive role in, you know, in your dog's behavior. And ultimately, when we think about training, we've got sort of two, I guess, main categories. We think about obedience training, which is very much more kind of what we used to focus on. Can they sit? Can they walk, you know, to heal? Can they wait and come when they're cold? That's essentially, can they perform a task when I ask it? What we're seeing more now is maybe a little bit more of a shift towards what we call like life skills. So essentially, it doesn't really matter if your dog can sit when you ask it to. Like, 
It doesn't need to be able to do that. What it does need to be able to do is, you know, be confident going out the house, understand, you know, what's an appropriate way to meet a new person and a new dog, you know, build their confidence, kind of to have an idea of kind of what's just expected of them. And I think a big part of that early training as well is that you'll also start to spot problems. You know, if we start doing some of that and we realise that it's not really about teaching the dog to greet someone, you know, without jumping up. If we start to notice that dog's actually quite scared of people it doesn't know, it's really useful that we know that now we can go off and do something about it. So I think, you know, spending time with a professional and actually sort of just focusing on what's your dog doing, paying attention to it. That's kind of as important as actually what we're teaching them. And there's a huge sort of interest in dog training, both by dog owners and the general public. And there's a lot of uh, very popular television shows by people who don't even own dogs, you know, about um, dog training and how to train your dog. And often they f- sort of focus on uh, what they'd call problem dogs and yeah. fix them, don't they? But some of them are less than helpful uh, to be an understatement, aren't they? The, the most popular sort of TV shows are kind of old fashioned, sometimes potentially dangerous training techniques that actually can make the dog more aggressive rather than less aggressive. Yeah, definitely. And I think social media, you know, probably even more so now than TV is hugely influential. And we've got a few problems. One of them is, you know, the level of experience and theoretical understanding for people training the dogs. You know, it's really important that, like we said, you know, if you can't interpret the body language correctly, you know, when you're watching your child, you can't do anything about it. If you're a dog professional who's teaching clients to read their dogs, if you can't interpret them very well, you know, your client has no hope. So to be clear, what I mean, we talk about sort of, um, there's a couple of things, isn't there? There's sort of this dominance theory of dog training where you have to be leader of the pack. And then there's sort of aversive training techniques, which basically means negative stimuli. Can you just expand on how, what these are and, and why they're dangerous? So when we think about dominance and people who hold dominance as an important part, what they tend to use is intimidation tactics. So they'll use like spatial pressure. So like leaning over dogs, you know, being very broad or having it, you know, you have to use a stern tone, otherwise they won't listen. Essentially, it's intimidation. And what they may read as the dog being placid and well behaved is often actually signs of stress and being uncomfortable. And dominance theory has absolutely no relevance to really anything. <laughs> and just to put that so people who are listening to this may be not familiar with what dominance theory is, it's the kind of perception that maybe in a wild wolf pack or some sort of wild dog pack that you have an alpha male, an alpha female, and they essentially uh, fight or bully all the other dogs into submission. And if you have a pet dog, you need to be the alpha dog and sort of bully, dominate it into submission. Is that is that a fair summary of what they believe? Yes. And I think the key thing there, as you say, is that you essentially use force intimidation to achieve the top position. And the key thing is, I, I suppose, and once again, I just want to put this in context, is that, it, it, for example, a wild wild wolf pack doesn't actually run in that way anyway, does it? No. So I said, there's lots and lots of flaws with that. And what's very interesting is David Mech, who is uh, responsible for pretty much the original paper on dominance in in wolves spent the rest of his career trying to retract that information and his publisher wouldn't stop publishing his book because it sold very well he is very very aware of his flaws and the flaws in the study and it is not accurate it should not be followed this was done on a captive wolf pack wasn't it so it was done on a captive wolf pack with two families 
different families do not live together in the wild <laughs> and they also obviously do not live in a small enclosure so it wasn't realistic it wasn't a natural grouping and that caused a lot of fights but that's not how dogs normally interact no I, and i guess an, another level of that as well is you know the, the the dogs that we own today have been they're not actually descendants from current wild wolves are they i mean they, no, they've been domesticated you know maybe 20 30,000 years ago they've been through the agricultural revolution with us like the physiology the the, the biology the, the dietary adaptions are completely changed to live with us. They're very, very different. Yeah, they're genetically different animals. You can't really compare yeah. a, you know, a, a, a pug with a wolf in Yellowstone National Park. No. And I think what's much more useful and what we seem to have quite conveniently ignored is that there is a huge amount of free living, free roaming, domesticated dog populations. When we talk about domesticated, we don't mean they live in the home. We mean they are sort of genetically domesticated. So there are lots of dogs who are very, very, very closely related to your pets who don't live in a pet home. They just do their own thing in other countries. Yes. Yeah, so I've done a lot of that sort of work in India and places where we do rabies control programs for street dogs. And they're not owned by an individual, but they're, they're not wild dogs. And people actually quite value them. They put food yeah. out for them. You know, they often live on one particular street. And they know the people who live on that street and they'll bark at strangers who don't live on that street. Even yeah. <laughs> though no one on the street particularly owns them anyway. There's a kind of... Um... But they live, you know, they live in a much more natural way. And actually, that's who we should be looking at. Not wolves. Wolves are pretty irrelevant. As you say, these free living dogs who are the same species, that's who we want to be looking at. And when we look at those, they don't even have, they're not even pack animals. They're social. They're not pack. They don't have a strict social hierarchy. And when there are disputes, it is usually based purely on those sort of ritualised behaviours. So we see like ritualised aggression, which is things like mouthing or like nipping at the neck, but not actually biting. Again, it's not like threat of like, I could bite your neck. And usually the dog who ends up in that kind of more senior role is gifted it. The submissive member sort of gives the dominance to the other dog. You don't take it. So they don't get as far as having a fight that causes injuries. Fights are really, really, really yeah. rare because they're a social living species. They don't want to fall out and have a fight. They don't want to injure yeah. each other. Certainly my experience of, you know, we've done a lot of neutering projects and rabies vaccines and they're, they're very rarely aggressive. They're very um, submissive, you know, even to people they don't know. We, we go and collect them, we take them back to the clinic, we operate on them, we vaccinate them, we let them go again. And you rarely get any problems, even though these aren't sort of family dogs. Yeah. They've, you know, they, they're normally very skilled at communicating. And that's kind of when they're given the opportunity to, to kind of do things their own way. And so when we think then back to training methods, the fact that there's quite a lot of training methods that essentially use, say, intimidation, force. So just to give people examples, you know, say intimidation, force, you mean sort of, you know, like sometimes people, I don't know, pin a dog down on the floor yeah. to show them you're stronger and you could throttle it if you wanted to is that the kind of yeah so these like alpha roles the idea that uh, that it's the idea essentially that like an alpha dog which they doesn't actually exist but an alpha dog would roll over and like pin another dog by its neck basically as a threat of i could kill you if i wanted to i've got you in a vulnerable position that doesn't really happen unless you have a real problem that doesn't happen in normal social groups with our dogs so the idea that we're we're doing that it doesn't tell the dog anything about us apart from the fact that we're scary and pretty unpredictable and shouldn't be trusted because we do weird, scary things. It certainly doesn't tell the dog that we have any higher status than it does. <laughs> and then you say when we think about things like using 
e-collars or using prong collars or things like that, that that generate pain when we look at the research that clearly tells us that that using those aversive methods increases our risk of aggression in various contexts just generally for they're more likely to be aggressive if you use like electric collars and sort of painful techniques yeah. But, you know, if we use things that essentially are unpleasant and they hurt and they they encourage a dog to stop doing something because the consequence is so unpleasant, that is going to increase their risk of being aggressive in the future. Whereas if we use what we call like positive reinforcement, so essentially we encourage the right behaviour, we use rewards to basically say, yes, this is what I want you to do, rather than no, this is what I don't want you to do. Can you give an example? Like, what, what do you want a dog to do and what would you reward it for? So like, I guess, you know, when we're talking about like those aggressive behaviours, what we might see is someone who wants to use like a prong collar, they might say, I don't want that dog growling or lunging at a stranger walking past so when it goes to do that i will check it on the prong so i'll basically pull back and put pressure on its neck that will stop it doing it it will suppress the behavior because it hurts so it's like oh i won't do that and that is trying to punish that emotional that kind of that behavioral response that doesn't change how it feels actually probably makes it feel even worse about the stranger whereas if we were looking at that from a positive you know reinforcement point of view we would say, OK, well, we'll position the dog in a in a situation where it's got enough space from the stranger that it can just watch the stranger and not react. And then we 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 reward that because we want the dog to not react when it sees a stranger. How do you reward it? The most commonly used way is food. It doesn't have to be food. You could use toys. We essentially want to use something that is valuable enough to the dog that they sort of think, oh, that was a good idea. If I don't bark and I, you know, I don't lunge. I get something nice. Next time I'll do that again because I like that outcome. So to try and get right inside the dog's head, I know we have to be careful about anthropomorphizing, but you've got a dog out on a walk on a lead. It's nervous that strangers are going to come up and stroke it. Like said, it doesn't want to be touched. And so its natural instinct would be to warn it by barking or you know, showing signs, as we are talking about before, that it doesn't want to be touched. Yeah. If you use something like an electric collar to shock it, to make sure it doesn't bark, all you're doing is teaching the dog that if it gives a warning that it doesn't want to be touched, it's now going to experience some sort of pain. So it's not that it doesn't mind being touched. It's now just too scared to even give the warning that it doesn't want to be touched. Yeah, exactly. And something, you know, very common saying um, in sort of behavior is that, you know, punishing, the, never punish the growl. Punishing the growl is like taking the batteries out of a smoke alarm. You know, mm. yes, it stops the annoying beeping. It doesn't stop you having a house fire, you know, and that's, you know, when we think about punishing these behaviours, we're not making aggression less likely. Actually, as we know, statistically, we're probably making it more likely. We're just stopping the dog being able to use lower level on that ladder behaviours. So if you view the growl as a warning that the dog's not happy with the situation, wants to be removed from it, doesn't want someone to come near it, whatever the situation is, um, you then punish it for, for giving a warning then you basically teach it it shouldn't growl. So then it just goes from sort of zero to 100 because it skips out the growl. Yeah, you know, you're not you're not changing the emotional response. You're not making that dog think, oh, actually, when a stranger comes past, it's not that bad, I feel okay. It just probably still thinks, I don't like this. And it can't, it's been encouraged to not tell you. And then, as you say, we get those dogs who are more likely to sort of try and hold it together and be like, okay, don't, don't growl like they don't like it if I growl but if they're still scared and that person is still there and still trying to touch them eventually you know they will get to a point where they're like I can't do it anymore 
I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to bite them because I'm now really scared and I really need to get rid of them. Yeah. And and I guess like the other way you said about if you keep the dog calm, you give it a treat as the stranger walks past over a period of time. It thinks every time a stranger comes near me, I get a treat. Yeah. Really basic classical conditioning. Um, we know we know that cells that fire together wire together. The idea is you get a conditioned emotional response. You see a stranger and you sort of end up essentially thinking mm, cheese. <laughs> which is what we want you know we want there to be a, a positive association and you've rewarded a behavior you like not you know staying still <laughs> not jumping not lunging that's still behavior we like and we've encouraged that to happen again so i guess to this i mean to, to sum this up really i mean adversive training techniques are, uh, are not helpful they actually can increase dog aggression and it's one reason quite a lot of us have been sort of campaigning to ban electric collars and we we're hoping the government would do it sort of recently but they haven't but hopefully the next government might do i, I suppose another thing we need to for, if you're an owner or, you're, or a vet and you're looking for to recommend dog trainers for puppies the problem at the moment is that not particularly well regulated are they i mean no. anyone can say they're a dog trainer and they might actually be causing more problems than they're solving yes definitely and that is a real issue and what i would encourage people to do is you know essentially really do their research I'm associated with the ABTC, the Animal Behaviour and Training Council. They currently are a group who are um, self-regulating, but they've got really good structures, you know, really good codes of practice and assessment processes. And they're actually working towards looking at UCAS accreditation to, to show that they've got a really standardised approach. And they have trainer and behaviourist roles. So you can look on their website and find a register and work out who you want. There's also um, a group called CCAB who have uh, clinical animal behaviorists and they're very similar in the way that they're assessed. So I think, you know, those two groups are the main places I'd be going to think about trying to find people who, you know, have a good level of theory and practical you know, knowledge and skill. I guess the, one of the key messages is that really early training, good quality training of both the yourself the owner and the dog will mean you'll have a sort of a, a much more likely to have a, a a puppy and a dog that's more sort of emotionally relaxed secure and less likely to have these sort of issues going forward that you then have to address exactly you know training is really important but also there's kind of that that kind of differentiation as well that if through your training you start to realize there's more emotional problems so as you say it's not just the dog's doing something you don't really like it's that actually the dog seems to be feeling you know a way that we don't think is very suitable like you said they're very scared of something or they're very aggressive towards something then we really need to look at having a behaviorist but mm. you know training is really important and the way we train has a really big impact on how our dogs are going to behave in the future not just mm. in terms of whether they can sit or not um it's going to have much broader yeah. implications than that I guess as well, like, you know, puppy training, you know, the more they socialise with other puppies and other people when they're young, you're less likely to have, you know, fear of strangers. and Yeah, if it's done in the right way. And I think that's the thing, you know, sometimes we do, people think, you know, oh, it's better just to go to some puppy classes than not. No experience is better than bad experience. So mm. don't rush to do things and think, oh, well, I'm not sure if these people are that good, but, you know, I'll do it because I ought to do some. That's not the attitude. You know, you say if it's better to do nothing than to do something bad. So if you're not sure, if you're not confident, have a chat with your vets, you know, speak to friends, you know, who are people used, who have people got on with, look at those websites and try and make sure, you know, that that training they're receiving and that education that you and they are getting is suitable and that, you know, we're setting them up in the right way. 
Well, that's been really good, Sophie. We will be sharing some links to those training organizations that you mentioned so people know where to go to to get good quality dog training. And I suppose the take-home message is really understanding dog body language, looking for the warning signs, making sure that you monitor kids with the dogs, that they're not missing warning signs as well. Um, and also just doing really good quality early socialization and dog training, which will help your dog feel less worried about certain situations that it's going to find itself in on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. So thank you for your time, Sophie. Thank you very much for having me.